Welcome to Quick Hits, the most intermittent podcast in the universe and the only one that gets you smartinized. When I sit down to do this show, I know pretty much what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. I don't write things down verbatim, but I take notes, and I know what facts I'm going to present, and usually I've checked and verified those facts to make sure that they really are facts. I know what conclusions I'm going to reach and perhaps lead you to based on those facts. If I'm discussing a problem, I may offer a solution that will never be implemented. And then, congratulations, you've been smart and I. Show's over. Have a nice day. But when it comes to discussing COVID and the best way to handle it and treat it, I I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know what's going on. And I followed this very closely. I followed this at least as close as just about anybody else. And it's an important question because I've been in quarantine here for two months, only going out occasionally to buy stuff. I have no idea. I've been an amateur epidemiologist for 20 years. I love looking at studies and tearing them apart and seeing if they're valid or if they're bogus. And even if they are valid, if those numbers are anything worth being concerned about. I've learned a lot about it and that experience has done me absolutely no good in trying to determine the reality of where we are right now. Because that's really what epidemiology is all about. You want to get the numbers, you want to get those numbers as accurate as possible, and you want to use those numbers to give yourself a picture of reality. And once you have that picture of reality, then you can decide where to move next. But if you have no idea of what the reality is and what's really going on, you're pretty much paralyzed. Or if you're the government, you're going to do things that eh, aren't really the correct solutions and will probably make things a whole lot worse. Now, I'm very concerned because when this first came out, we were told, here's all the different things that make you more likely to die if you get it. And I have four of those things. I'm old, I'm fat, I'm diabetic, and I'm a smoker. And all of those things make you more likely to die if you get this, we're told. Although it turns out that one of them, strangely, may have a protective effect. We'll get into that in a little bit. But we don't have any valid numbers. We don't know what's going on. No individual knows, no organizations, no government. And so we can't make correct decisions. We don't know with any worthwhile degree of certainty how infectious this is, how deadly it is, what the recovery rate is, how many people have had it and recovered without knowing it, how many people are asymptomatic carriers, how many have antibodies for it, what therapies are effective. Even now, four months into this thing and two months into the quarantine, We don't know any of these numbers for several reasons. 
including incentives to misdiagnose people, bad tests, and of course sloppy reporting. For instance, how infectious is it? That's referred to as the R number, and the R number is how many people an infected person will infect themselves. So if you have an R number of less than one, eh, that's it. The, the disease can't spread. If it's 1.2 or 1.3, it's going to spread a little bit. If it's two, that's pretty infectious because an infected person gives it to two people. Those two people each give it to another two people. So now you've got four people infected. Those four people give it to 16 people and it spreads very quickly. And if you've got an R number of 2.5 or 3, forget it. You've got a real mess on your hands. Very infectious disease that pretty much everybody's going to get. How deadly is it? How likely are you to die if you get this? We have no idea. Let's take, for example, you've got an 85-year-old guy. He's got advanced prostate cancer. He's got bad circulation. He's getting a little confused, a little bit of dementia. He smoked for 30 years, but he quit 15 years ago when he was 70. And he has a heart attack and dies. What did he die of? What killed him? Was it the cancer? Was it the bad circulation? Anti-smokers will mark it down as a smoking-related death. What killed him? And how do we classify his death? Now, let's say, same guy, but just before he dies, they do a test and find he's got a little COVID in there. He's going to be marked down as a COVID death, which is blatantly inaccurate because he was going to die anyway. But now we got a COVID death, and there is an incentive built in to misreport things as COVID deaths. If you report something as a COVID death, and they're on Medicare, which most old folks are, you're going to get an extra 9000 bucks or so. If you put them on a ventilator, that goes up to nearly forty grand. So you've got an incentive to the point where people were being listed as COVID deaths even when there were no tests available. Well, his lungs were congested and he died. It's a COVID death. Because of that, we have no idea how deadly this is. Is it much more deadly than the regular flu? It appears to be. But again, with no numbers, we really can't know. How many people have had it without realizing it and recovered from it? This doesn't affect everybody the same. And a lot of people get it and they just get some mild symptoms or maybe no symptoms at all. How many people fall into that category? Without testing, we don't know. We don't have the test kits that we need. And the test kits that we have, some of them are bad. Now, the testing was a real fiasco, and it was just one of the many, 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 many things that the government has screwed up and made worse. It started out with the CDC insisting we're the only ones that can make the tests, and so they held up testing for that, came up with a test that had 40% false positives, so that was worthless. They tied up testing all over the place. There were hospitals that had approved tests, good tests that they knew worked, 
but they weren't allowed to give them because the FDA said those tests could only be given in labs. And at every step of the way along this process, the FDA and other government agencies have really screwed things up. In fact, there was uh, one person that had, and I think this was for tests uh, that they were putting in for approval, and they filled all the paperwork and they got it all done and they sent it in and they were informed that, no, they did it wrong. The information had to be saved to a PDF file, burned to a CD, and then mailed to the FDA. No other way of submitting it was acceptable. Burning it to a CD. I think maybe we should buy the FDA some calendars so they could see what year this is. If somebody is an asymptomatic carrier, can they still spread it? Was there our number? Hmm, we don't know. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. What protocols work for treating it once somebody is infected? Now, there was a big rush on ventilators. We're going to need to put people on ventilators, but that's almost a death sentence. Something like 25% of the people who get put on ventilators live. The other 75% don't. And it turns out that ventilators may actually be a bad thing for COVID patients. Again, eh, we don't know. We're just kind of guessing. Doctors from all over the world, a lot of different ones, said that they had great success treating patients that had early symptoms with hydroxychloroquine. Sometimes in combinations with zinc and erythromycin, they were reporting really spectacular results. Some were reporting a 95% success rate, and their patients were cured within four days. And the beauty of it is this is a cheap drug. The entire protocol for treating somebody is like 20 bucks worth of pills. Wow, this is wonderful. But is it really? Does it work? There have since been some studies that claim no. One of them came from China. It was 150 people, half treated, half not. And that study said that there was no difference. That's kind of a useless study, though, because A, the sample size is pretty small. B, it wasn't double blind. And C, it's from China. A retrospective study that was done on it found that it had no effect in certain combinations, but if it was just pure hydroxychloroquine without zinc or without erythromycin, there was actually a 14% higher fatality rate. Again, not a peer-reviewed study, not a well-done study, a retrospective study. In other words, they're just looking at past cases. And more importantly, 14% is nothing with epidemiology. It really isn't. It may seem like a lot, but it's really nothing. You really want 50% or 100% difference before it's anything that you get upset about. And these doctors who were doing this didn't really have an incentive to lie about it. And they were all independent doctors. There were at least three or four of them that had tried this and said that it worked wonderfully. And that led to one of my favorite stories, about this whole mess. A story that has multiple chapters 
and the final chapter has not been written yet. Chapter 1. Trump, in a press conference, mentions hydroxychloroquine as being possibly a good thing. This was early on. We didn't really know at the time, but reports were coming in that it worked. Trump, of course, has some problems with communicating. Have you ever had a conversation with a five-year-old kid who's trying to explain something to you, and they know what they're trying to explain, but they don't have the vocabulary to explain it? And as they try to explain it, they get more and more frustrated because they just don't have the words. That's kind of what Trump reminds me of. Without the frustration, he just confidently barrels through and says ultimately the wrong thing. But he made this statement about uh, hydroxychloroquine. That's chapter one. In chapter two, the news says somebody drank fish tank cleaner because it had hydroxychloroquine in it and it killed him. Chapter three. Turns out that both the man and his wife drank the cleaner, which by the way had chloroquine in it, not hydroxychloroquine. But he drank more and she drank less and he died and she got sick. Around this time we learn their names. It's Gary Linus, who was 68, and Wanda, who is 61. Chapter 4. Wanda condemns Trump for giving bad information. No, we took his information and we died and it's all his fault. Don't ever trust Trump. Chapter 5. It's revealed that she is a hardcore Democrat with a severe case of Trump derangement syndrome. Her social media is full of tirades about how horrible and stupid Trump is, which makes it seem kind of strange that she would take his advice if she hates him so much and trusts him so little. Chapter 6. David Richards, a longtime Facebook friend, puts up a speculation that this might be a good way to murder somebody. You give them too much stuff that kills them. You take a little bit that just makes you sick. That gives you an alibi. Blame it on Trump. Ta-da! Perfect murder. A week after that, Crowder from Lauder with Crowder picks up on the same idea and puts it up on YouTube and it starts getting some credence. Chapter 7. The cops start paying attention and go after her for a homicide investigation. Chapter 8. Not written yet. We don't know what's going to happen with it. But the whole thing just kind of unfolded, kind of like the Tiger King story, a little here, and this is bad, and this is worse, and oh no, look at this. And I've got to admit, it's been really fun to watch, and it will be interesting to see how it works out. Federal government has also been stealing PPE, personal protective equipment, especially masks, just stealing them, just confiscating them. The Miami Fire Department ordered a million of them for themselves and for other people. 
And uh, the feds just showed up and said, yeah, we're taking those. Stole them, took them. Because they're the government. What are you going to do? They have bigger guns. And you're not allowed to shoot back at them. A supplier in Delaware had $400,000 worth of masks stolen. Two different shipments. Again, just stolen by the feds. No compensation, nothing. We're taking them. There was a story, and I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, a story that I read about a hospital that had managed to find some masks, and they actually delivered them in trucks that were marked as food trucks to protect it from the feds so that they wouldn't get stolen. Now, here's a fun one that uh, is actually starting to get some traction, much to my surprise. And that is that smokers don't get it as often. In countries where 30% of the population smokes, you would expect 30% of the patients for COVID would be smokers. Maybe more if smoking caused the problem or made it worse. But it turns out that when 30% of the population smokes, about 4% of the people that come in with the disease are smokers. And this has happened in country after country after country. In the U.S., where a little under 20% of the population smokes, only 2 or 3% of the COVID patients are smokers. And this has happened so many times in so many countries that it's actually becoming pretty tough to deny there seems to be some sort of a protective effect and smokers don't get it as often. Theories abound. Is it the nicotine? Is it something else? And of course, I'm, I'm sure the nicotine nannies are just having a fit. There was a study probably 10 years ago, and it, it was, looked like a fairly well done study that showed that people who had smoked or currently smoked were 50% less likely to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. And this effect happened even if they had only smoked for, you know, if somebody's 80 years old and they smoked in their 30s for three years, the protective effect seemed to carry over. Very strange. Nobody knows why. And of course, there were no follow-ups on this because can you imagine if it turned out smoking actually had a good effect for somebody? Wow, the nicotine nannies would just totally freak out. But because of politics that line of inquiry was never pursued. Another thing that seems to protect you from getting the disease is homelessness. Where they have done tests in homeless shelters, they have found that about a third of the homeless people have been exposed to it. Either have it or have the antibodies to it, but in most cases they just test positive for the virus but they don't get it. They have a much, much lower rate than the rest of the population. And again, nobody really knows why. I have my own theory, which I think makes sense, but could be completely wrong. And that is people who are homeless either very quickly develop a robust immune system or they die. So if you're homeless 
and you're sleeping next to a dumpster, or maybe in a dumpster, and you're eating food that's eh, not quite fresh, and you're constantly associating with other homeless people, you don't have time to keep yourself clean, you don't have the facilities to keep yourself clean, so you're living kind of in dirt and filth, and my guess is that all of that gives you a very robust immune system, but I don't know, I have no idea. Once again, I'm just guessing. Governors across many states have been releasing criminals so that the criminals don't get COVID. And, you know, it's really surprising and amazing. But when you let violent criminals out, they commit crimes again. What a surprise. I live in New York State. And New York State is the hotbed of this virus for pretty much the whole world. Primarily because of New York City, where you got 8 million people stacked up there. And we've got the highest number of cases, the highest number of deaths, and it's been a real mess. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the politics of the state of New York. First of all, when you say New York, almost everybody thinks of New York City. The huge, towering skyscrapers. The masses of people. But the fact is, New York City is just a tiny part of the state. They're down in the lower right-hand corner, kind of in the rectum of the state. And there is a huge schism between New York City and its surrounding counties and all the rest of New York State, which is considered upstate. Upstate New York is mostly rural. You've got some big cities scattered around, you know, Syracuse, Buffalo, Utica, some fairly large-sized cities. New York State is a very rural state. If you are in any of the larger cities in New York State, you are never more than 15 minutes from a farm. I travel through the state to visit friends and relatives, and it's just miles and miles and miles and miles of farmland. And, oh, here's a little town, and then, oh, miles and miles and miles of farmland. There is a belief amongst upstate residents that Mario Cuomo despises us and loves New York City. It's not hard to believe because it's all of New York City and some pockets around Albany that put him in office. And everybody else in the state pretty much despises him. And he, in turn, despises us. Well, that's the theory. And now we have proof that it's correct. Cuomo announced that he was going to send the National Guard to upstate hospitals and facilities to confiscate ventilators for them to be shipped to New York City. Screw you in upstate. You don't need that. We need to keep our voters, the people that vote for us, healthy. We're going to come in and literally steal them at the point of a gun and send them where we want them. The only reason he didn't do that was because it turned out he didn't need ventilators, and ventilators, turned out, are probably a bad thing for COVID patients. 
So he didn't actually back off of that. He just didn't have to implement it. Then he took another step that shows his real contempt for upstaters. And he said, we're going to be shipping people from New York City that are infected into upstate nursing homes, and you have to take them. Now, nursing homes are not equipped to do negative pressure isolation wards. They're open. People walk around in them. The air circulates freely amongst the rooms. And as a result of that move, thousands of people have died. In fact, most of the people who have died from COVID have died in nursing homes. Although, of course, you have to factor in the question that I brought up earlier about classification. But his pure contempt for upstaters was really manifest in that claim. And after a month of the people he shipped up from New York City infecting other residents and killing them, and we're talking, the last number I saw was 5,600, 6,000. That really shows us exactly where the illustrious Mario is coming from. Rachel Levine, who is the health minister for Pennsylvania, she did the same thing. Said that we're, we're going to send infected people to nursing homes. But just before she did that, she took her 95-year-old mother out of a nursing home and put her into a hotel. What's that tell you? She knew that that was going to kill people. She didn't give a damn. She had to protect mom. But nobody else. And, and frankly, I think that that's a, that's a criminal offense. She should be in jail for that. Speaking of disgusting, Rachel Levine is, uh, well, she used to be a dude. And she looks rather disgusting, too. And if you look at all of these people who are supposedly telling us how to be healthy and live our lives, they're the sickest-looking bunch of folks you've ever seen anywhere. Half of them are morbidly obese, just grossly globs of fat hanging off them. I'm not talking a little chunky. I'm talking really medically in trouble because of massive obesity. The rest of them look like riffraff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They got Their eyes are sunken and their cheeks are shallow and they, they just look horrible or maybe they were extras on the set of The Walking Dead. And a special shout out goes to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Look up that picture if you'd like. She looks like Beetlejuice coming off of a five-day meth bender. She's just terribly unhealthy looking. And these are the people that are telling us how to live. Now, I just, I'm not just saying, oh, look at these people. They're, they're ugly. They're fat. They're too skinny. Ha, ha, ha. No, uh, the point is, these are people that are making decisions for our health, and they obviously are not even capable of making their own health decisions. It'd be like hiring a personal trainer, sight unseen, and he walks into the gym and he's 400 pounds and he's sucking on a Mountain Dew and eating a burrito. Not exactly the person you want giving you health advice, or in this case, making life-affecting health decisions. 
YouTube is now deleting any videos that contradict the official story. What's the official story? Uh, the official story, according to YouTube, is whatever the World Health Organization says. They have not yet changed their name to WhoTube, but that would be appropriate. The Who, of course, has a very long history of lying about data, deleting data, just being wrong because they politicize everything. I did a big long thing about it where they did a uh, study that showed there was no bad effects from secondhand smoke and then attempted to bury it. And when they were forced to publish it, they lied about it in the headline of the article. They are simply not a trustworthy organization, but they are the be-all and end-all as far as YouTube is concerned. So what do we need to do? We've been into this long enough that we have some examples of various approaches. One that a lot of people are looking at is Sweden. They didn't do a lockdown. They just basically did some social distancing and said, you know, wash your hands and use sanitizer. And some folks look at their numbers and say they have three times the death of their nearby neighbors. And other folks look at it and say, no, actually the number is about the same as their nearby countries. If you look at population instead of infection. And again, I have no idea. Is that the right approach to use? Hong Kong, which is one of the most densely populated countries on earth, have been in check. Very few cases. And they have done no shelter in place or anything else. They've worn some masks and used some precautions, but they don't seem to have a problem with it. So who do we believe? I have no idea. The biggest problem with this is the severe damage that it's doing to the economy, to our economy and to economies around the world. Very few politicians have any understanding of even basic economics. And they seem to be operating under the idea that, well, a business can close and just sit there and fester for two or three or four or five months, however long we say they have to, and then reopen and then everything will be fine. And it will be an inconvenience. But that is not how small businesses work. Small businesses usually are barely profitable. And they can't shut down for any length of time and survive. You know that little bakery that you like to go to from time to time that's family run? Well, those people have probably gotten deeply in debt running that business. And they're marginally profitable. But if you shut them down... They don't have any money coming in to pay their rent, to pay the electricity or their bills or anything else. And they're going to be out of business. And small businesses provide about half of the employment in this country. And about 60 to 70 percent of all new jobs come from small businesses. And most of them are going to be gone. 
There's also the matter of the supply chain, and we're seeing how that's affecting us now going into supermarkets and finding things like chicken and eggs and things like that that are in short supply. Meanwhile, farmers are euthanizing chickens because their market for eggs has dried up and they're slaughtering cattle and they're dumping milk like crazy because you can't stop milking a cow even when there's nobody buying your milk. The big problem is restaurants because a lot of us eat a lot of meals at restaurants. Fast food places, sit-down places, sandwich places. And now that all those places are closed, they're only offering takeout, so they're doing 20% of the business that they usually did. All those restaurants not ordering anything is really screwing up the supply chain. And the supply chain is a very, very complicated net. It's more of a net than a chain that makes sure that you can get anything that you want easily and cheaply. Let's say you walk into the store and you pick up some tomatoes and a brick of cheese, maybe get some sliced ham at the deli, uh, pick up a package of chicken from the meat department and a can of corn and some paper towels. Every one of those things traveled a very long supply chain that has been optimized at every step of the way to get that product in your hot little hands. Let's take those tomatoes, for instance. Those tomatoes came from a central warehouse on a truck. They were delivered to that central warehouse by other trucks from farmers. And those farmers bought seeds and fertilizer and they used a tractor to help harvest them. Where'd that tractor come from, by the way? What's the supply chain to make that tractor? That's a very long and complicated supply chain for all the parts for that. If you really want to understand that, read I Pencil. It's a very short essay that talks about the supply chain and how it works and how no one individual has the technology to supply all the raw materials that you need to make a pencil. And if you haven't read it, look it up. It's, it's, it's brief and you will learn more about economics in that one little short essay than you will just about anywhere else. My brother-in-law in Chicago for many years had a small business where he, where he supplied restaurants First, he started out just doing meat, and then he started doing vegetables. He added vegetables to it, and then eventually added paper goods and, and all kinds of things. I went to work with him a couple of times, mostly just to kind of get a feel for what he did and how it worked. We got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and drove to Fulton Street in Chicago, where there were about two blocks deep and about 10 or 15 blocks long, just rows and rows of warehouses that sold wholesale food to people like him, to restaurants directly, uh, and to small stores that would come and buy supplies there. 
I was there with him and he gave me a hand truck and said, one of my customers ordered quail. It was a special order and said, I want you to go down here. It's down three blocks. It's such and such a place. And I want you to pick up a case of quail that I ordered for this guy. They told me it would be 42 cents, but when you go there, they're probably going to try and rip you off and say it's 47 or 48 cents. By the way, when they talk in cents, what they're really saying is how much it is per pound. In that environment, they don't say per pound because it's implicit, it's understood. How much are chicken wings? 25 cents. That means 25 cents a pound. How much are chicken breasts? 67 cents. Okay. So he sends me to this place. Go there. I get in line. There's ordered chaos going on all around. Get up there and say, okay, I've got a case of quail, a dozen quail for V&E meats. And they said, okay, that'll be 47 cents. And I said, no, it's 42. Check again. And they looked down and pretended they were surprised and said, oh, yes, it's 42. And they brought out the case of quail and charged me whatever the total was and took it back off to his truck. This kind of transaction happens thousands of times a day in this market, tens of thousands of times a week. A lot of it's done with cash. It's very chaotic, but not really. It's organized. It just appears to be chaotic. And this entire piece of the supply chain is now gone. What are all these places going to do? I understand the markets have moved. I don't think they're still in that same area. That area has been more gentrified. But that was just a small piece of what went on to get chicken wings to that restaurant where you want to order them. You break that chain, all of a sudden, the stuff that was easy to get and relatively cheap to get suddenly becomes unavailable or very, very expensive. And there's a lot of things that we don't even think about that are actually part of the supply chain. Let's take, for instance, windshield wiper blades. That's a pretty generic thing. You don't think anything of it. You've got to replace them every year or so. You walk into the auto parts store and you say, yeah, here's the size blades I need. And they give them to you. You pay for them. They're fairly reasonably priced and you're done. It's not a big deal. What happens if, because of shortages in the supply chain, you can no longer get windshield wiper blades? Maybe the rubber's not available, or the plastic that they're packaged in, or whatever. Now you can't buy windshield wiper blades. What happens? Well, if you've got a truck with bad windshield wipers, that truck cannot deliver in bad weather. It can still deliver in good weather, but in bad weather can't do it. It's taken out of the chain. And that means that this restaurant or that supermarket doesn't get their stuff because the truck can't deliver to them. You don't even think about something that trivial. Windshield wiper blades, nothing. But it could affect the whole supply chain. So now we're going on two months worth of shutdowns 
Small businesses have died and are dying. And the ones that are fighting back are getting the full force of the state brought down on them for daring to defy orders. We'll get to more of that in a second. Now, when this thing first started happening, one of the first things that came to my mind, uh, because I'm somewhat obsessed with bad cops, how long will it be before the cops murder somebody to enforce some of these rules and regulations? And I didn't have to wait too long. It actually wasn't a murder. It was an attempted murder. A Louisiana cop heard some kids making noise outside at 3 o'clock in the morning. He looked out and there were three teenagers standing around talking and they were near his car. So, relying on the police motto of see something, shoot something, he pulled out his gun and shot one of the kids in the head. 14-year-old kid he shot in the head. He didn't kill him. The kid is now in critical condition. The cop, of course, is... Probably not going to have anything happen to him about it. They still haven't released his name. This happened a month or so ago. But there is no law or rule so trivial that the cops won't kill you for it. And if you're paying attention, you've seen lots and lots of videos of cops just being cops. Horrible people uh, doing horrible things to people to try and enforce the rules and regulations and edicts, and they're not even laws in most cases, they're just edicts that are being passed out by so-called professionals. We've seen stories of cops arresting people for driving alone in their car. Woman just went on a drive, just by herself, not near anybody. Cop gave her a ticket for that. There was a church that did a drive-in service where folks basically drove in and they were sitting in their cars six feet away from each other listening to the service on their FM radio and Officer Friendly showed up and handed out $500 tickets to each and every person in the car. Now these were mostly elderly people, people who were not tech savvy or weren't going to sit there with Zoom in front of them. They're probably running a Windows 95 machine if they have anything. And they were actually being responsible. They had come up with a solution to the problem. Nope, $500 ticket for everybody. The press on that was so devastating that they actually rescinded those tickets. But the only reason they did it was because so many people were complaining about it. People have been arrested for paddle boating in the ocean. I saw one video, it was great. It was this uh, woman, it was taken from a distance. It was a woman who looked like she was in her mid-twenties, and she's running along the beach by herself, minding her own business. And she runs by like four cops that are standing there, and one of the cops chases her. There wasn't any audio on it. You couldn't hear if um, he was yelling at her, but I'm sure that he was. And she just kept running. And he's running after her, and for a second it looked like he might catch up, but she just kept running. And he eventually ran out of breath and she just ran along the way. She was fine. There was a, another case, one that I really thought was great, where there was a guy sitting in a chair fishing at a little cooler there. Four cops 
went to arrest him. And when they got there, they found that it was just a dummy that somebody had set up. So they didn't get to arrest anybody or shoot anybody. I'm sure that ruined their whole day. Some local governments filled skate parks with sand so that nobody could skate on them. In one case, the skateboarders showed up and they just cleaned it all out. They just shoveled it all out and swept it all out and went back to skateboarding. In another case, the skateboarders didn't come back, but the dirt bikers did. And they were having a good time. In, in Michigan, it's legal to go out on a lake in a canoe, but not in a motorboat. Because, because they say so, I guess. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And now, we have drones. Drones that are patrolling the skies, looking for citizens who are standing too close to each other. It can actually measure them. And there's a loudspeaker in them. So, it can warn people. Attention, citizen. You are 5 foot and 11 inches away from your fellow citizen. Please move one inch away to be in compliance. There's even some of them that claim to be able to measure a person's temperature and heart rate so they can pick out infected people. How do you think that's going to work out? Attention, citizen, we believe you are infected. Do not move. Do not move. Moving will be a federal offense. Stand in place and a health official will soon arrive to help you out. These drones, by the way, are made by Chinese companies. And, of course, we can trust them to be discreet with any data that they collect. On a completely unrelated note, just kind of a little thing on the side, there are different ways that you can take down a drone. The first thing most people think of is a shotgun, and that's great if you are in a rural area, but you can't use that in an urban area or even a suburban area because it's too dangerous. Uh, those pellets have to come down somewhere. There are shotgun pellets that are designed specifically for taking down drones. It's a shotgun shell it costs about 12 bucks for three so they're not cheap and what they are is they have multiple pellets i think they have like five or six pellets that are all tied together to a central point so when you shoot it it expands and creates a star that's this cord which if it hits that drone it gets tangled up in the rotors and brings it down and if it misses it it's just this lightweight thing that just kind of flutters down to earth when it's done. There's another device that you can use that's electronic. It looks like a gun, and you aim it at the drone, and it shoots radio waves out and takes control of the drone, and then you can just lower it to the ground, just kind of walk it down, because now it's yours instead of whoever is running it behind the scenes. I've also seen experiments with other drones carrying a net underneath flies over the drone that is trying to take out and through entanglement they both fall to the ground you could probably do that by hanging fishing wire too i don't know it's worth experimenting the very coolest way i've seen to get rid of drones and this is actually in use around some airports where they want to make sure that hobby drones don't interfere with the planes 
You can train eagles or falcons to attack them. So here's somebody in their little drone, their little surveillance drone, uh, maybe a peeping Tom, uh, maybe a cop two blocks away. And they're just kind of cruising along. And all of a sudden, along comes an eagle and says, not in my sky, and just goes, and that's the end of the drone. However, eagles are difficult pets to maintain. So that's not really a practical solution either. I'd like to see some sort of a national competition for taking out government surveillance, drones and anything else. And you'd give points to folks based on how much damage they cause. Now, one very effective way of taking a surveillance camera out of commission is to just walk up to it with a long pole and nudge it so now it points at the sky. And it's suddenly worthless unless somebody comes out with a ladder and fixes it. And see, what we would do is, this will become a, a national hobby with uh, Facebook pages and YouTube channels and magazines that you could pick up at the bookstore. And each month you pass out points for whoever damaged any kind of government surveillance. So, for instance, if you uh, just nudged it out of the way, uh, that can be fixed fairly easy. That's probably 15 points. If you hit the lens with a paint gun, uh, that's only 20 points because it's going to wash off in the next rainstorm. However, if there is a speed camera and you slice it down and cut the wires, well, you pretty well disabled that thing. So uh, we'll give you 150 points for that. Take down a surveillance drone, 300 points. And if somehow you're clever enough to take down a predator drone, one of those government planes that flies two miles up and has cameras that can film the hair on your wife's knuckles. If you can take one of those down, that, that you get all the points for that. All the points. You'd be a national hero and you'd get lots of fan mail delivered to your prison cell. A lot of churches have had big meetings passing microphones around and infecting a lot of people. A lot of people are getting very sick and dying from that. There was one interview that I, I loved. I thought it was great. There was a guy interviewing people on their way out of a crowded church service. And he was asking people, you know, aren't you afraid? Aren't you concerned? And one woman said, I'm not concerned. I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then another guy that he interviewed in his car said almost the exact same thing. I'm protected because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. This is why I could never be a journalist, because if I had done that interview, my reply would have been, Ew, that's disgusting. Do you like need a moist towelette or something? It's really gross. But of course, the interviewer was more respectful than he probably should have been. People are getting fed up with this and they are going out and they are doing protests and the stay-at-home crowd looks at these protesters, some of who are armed, 
and say, oh, they're terrible right-wing trumpets, they're evil, they're bad, they're rotten. And other people say, yay, they're standing up to the government. I understand both points of view. And the people that were complaining about them having guns with them, because in a lot of the protests they had guns, really just don't understand the Second Amendment and the purpose of it. It's not there for bears or burglars. It's there to fight a tyrannical government. That's something that really blows the mind of people in Europe and Australia because they don't have the same culture that we do when it comes to guns. But yeah, if you read the papers of the Founding Fathers, that's exactly why the Second Amendment was written. So let's take a look at a couple of stories of people who have tried to reopen their business. Let's start with Carl Mankey. He's a barber who's 77 years old. And after having his barber shop closed down for a month and a half, he decided he was going to reopen it. He's going to wear the mask. He's going to do protocols to help keep people safe. The state came in, tried to shut him down. He stayed open. They revoked his license. Isn't it great that we get licensed for everything? They revoked his license, and he said, screw you, and stayed open. A local militia group showed up and said, we're not going to let the police go in there and arrest him. We're going to block the doors if we have to. And I think at that point, the police kind of backed off because they don't like people that can defend themselves and shoot back. And as far as I know, he is still operating. A woman named Shelley Luther also opened her salon and had similar dealings with government officials. They actually arrested her, threw her in jail. And when she was brought to court, the judge said, well, we'll forgive all the charges if you just apologize. And she adamantly refused to apologize. She said that I'm open to feed my kids and so that my employees can feed their kids. I'm not going to apologize for that. And then one of the most egregious ones is a woman named Lindsey Graham. No relation to the uh, Congress weasel of the same name. She had been running a glamour salon for 15 years and it had been closed down for a month and a half, two months because of the lockdown. And she decided she was going to open. On May 2nd, she let her clients know that she was opening on the 5th. On May 4th, OSHA threatened her with a $70,000 fine. And fines like that are not meant to punish. They are meant to destroy. All right, I don't know how too many small businesses that can afford a $70,000 fine without shutting down. So on May 5th, she opened, like she said she would. And on May 6th, she got a letter from the city, and she rents her salon from the city. She rents the space. She got a letter from the city of Salem saying she was in violation of the lease contract, and they were going to shut her down. And here's the scariest part. On May 7th, Child Protective Services showed up at her home while she was at work 
and initiated an investigation of her children's environment. They threatened her fucking kids. How evil do you have to be to do something like that? Child Protective Services in general is a vile organization. All over the country, CPS, they have different names, but uh, Child Protective Services break up healthy families and keep destructive families together. They're horrible people. But to show up at somebody's house and threaten their children, threaten that you're going to take their children away because you dared to defy an order to open, that's just disgusting. On May 14th, she got another letter from OSHA. They're going to fine her $14,000 a day and they're going to notify other state agencies to initiate additional investigations. Doesn't that make you feel great that the government serves the people? Yeah, not in this country. The thing that makes all of this possible is snitches. Whenever I see, see something, say something posted somewhere, it just, it's, just makes me angry. It just sticks in my craw because that is the most un-American statement that you can make in four words. It says, snitch on your neighbors, turn your neighbors in every chance you get for any minor thing. And man, there are so many people out there that just can't wait to do it. Whenever you see the cops harassing somebody, they'll always tell you, we got several calls. And they probably did. They're not lying about that. Now, we have to modify the saying. It used to be snitches get stitches and get thrown in ditches. But because of shortage of medical supplies, we're leaving the middle part out. Snitches no longer get stitches because of the lack of medical supplies and just get deposited directly into ditches. I can't tell you how much I despise such people. I... I really can't. They are one of the lowest life forms on earth. People that are just looking to turn somebody in. I have a neighbor two doors down whose daughters live with him and uh, they have some kids. And they had a party last week. They had a birthday party. And there were probably 20 adults and 15 kids and they were all standing around drinking beer. They weren't social distancing. They weren't wearing masks. They were just playing music. They were playing it loud, but it was good music, so I didn't mind. They were hanging out. They were making noise. They were having a good time. And the party lasted for a long time because, well, we don't get to party that much, so we don't want to quit too soon. When I saw that, I picked up my phone and I played a game because it was absolutely none of my business. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if some of the other neighbors snitched on them. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. In Louisiana, they actually got a list of 900 snitches, people who had called in, and uh, published it. I couldn't find it on the Internet, not that I would be able to do anything with it, because uh, it, it's not local to me. But through something called the Sunshine Law, they were able to file and get a list with the names and identifying information on 900 different snitches. How miserable do you think those people's lives are going to be 
for the rest of their lives. And I think that's great. And by the way, on a completely unrelated note, Home Depot has a sale going on on driveway sealer and Hobby Lobby sells large bags of loose feathers. We don't know what the long-term effects of this lockdown are, except, of course, we know that it's destroying the economy. But one thing I think that's going to make a huge difference and is going to have to change dramatically is higher education and primary education. People that are going to college are now just doing offline training. And some of them are suing to get some of their tuition back because they didn't pay 20 grand to do a Zoom classroom. It's not going to take too much for some of them to start figuring out that, hey, you know, I can get all this training online. Maybe hire a tutor for the harder parts. But I don't need college. I don't need to spend six figures, have a lifetime of debt for a piece of paper that says I have this knowledge, when in fact I can get that knowledge cheap or even free. And I think that's going to change a lot of colleges, what their approaches are and what their pricing is and things like that. We'll wait and see, but I think there may be a dramatic change there. I also think you're going to see a great increase in homeschooling. Now, some of the parents, I'm sure, are going absolutely batshit crazy with their kids at home all this time. And are going to be really happy to shuffle them back off to schools. But some of the parents, being forced into homeschooling, are going to say, Wow, you know, uh, my kid's doing so much better with this. And they're learning so much more. Learning is not a chore. Learning is fun. And you're going to see a lot of homeschooling and unschooling. And when the schools do open back up, the parents are going to say, yeah, you know what? Never mind. We got this. We'll see. But this is my prediction. One of my predictions. I feel bad for the people that are missing out on various milestones. Things that are standard and common like senior proms yeah, no senior prom or junior prom for anybody this year high school graduation now some people may turn their nose up at it but there's a reason for these ceremonies when you have rites of passage from one phase of your life to the next whether it's a graduation or a marriage or a death people get together and celebrate it. And it's part of our life. It's part of what makes us human. The village that I live in has an antique festival every year with hundreds of vendors. It's great fun to walk around in. And they also have a crafts fair where uh, they get all kinds of people making all kinds of things. Arts and crafts and, and makers of all sorts. And the fun is not just going around and seeing the stuff, but it's interacting with the people in the booth. It's meeting your neighbors and saying hi. It's petting the dogs. It's one of the things that makes us human, to go out and do things like that. Now, I like crowds. People, I know a lot of people hate crowds. I love crowd. I love being in the middle of a crowd and hearing what's going on, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the little snippets of conversation that you get as you walk by. 
people's reactions. I especially love being in a crowd of people watching fireworks with all the oohs and the ahs of the conversations. Great stuff. Gone. We're not doing that anymore. And I really miss it. And I think just about everybody else does too. Concerts. No more concerts. There's just something special about going to a venue, a 40-seat coffee house or a 3,000-seat arena, and being a part of the show, being part of the audience and the crowd and just having that whole experience. That's all gone. These are all things that are part of our humanity. They're what makes us human. And if we're going to stay human, we need to get back to them. And we need to get back to them soon. That's it for this episode of the Quick Hits Podcast. If you learned a little something, if you've changed your mind, or even if you can just understand a different point of view without necessarily agreeing with it, congratulations, you've been smartnized. Wow, I think this is the longest uh, quick hits that I've ever done. And uh, I'm sitting here recording it saying, oh, now i got to go back and edit it all, which is the drudge work of doing this. I know some people enjoy that. I don't, but how are you all doing? How you doing? Drop me a line. Let me know. Put something in the headline, in the subject matter that lets me know that it's not spam, that it's about the podcast putting quick hits or COVID podcast or whatever, or I have no idea, which is the title of this one. I have no idea how many people are listening to this. Uh, The nature of the media makes it hard to even come up with a good estimate. So drop me a line, dave at davehit.com, even if it's just to say hi. I'm doing okay. I'm sitting here month two. My wife and I have been cooped up in the house. And uh, we're kind of fortunate. I mean, we've been together 40 years and uh, we like each other. So uh, that's been good. I can't imagine what it's like for people that hate each other being sequestered. I guess that's why one of them fed fish tank cleaner to her husband. Well, we're sitting here. I have not had a haircut in two months and... That's really not from being sequestered because I live with my barber. My wife has been cutting my hair since forever and she could probably do it in her sleep. It takes about 20 minutes, but we just eh, haven't gotten around to it. Just kind of put things off because why not? We can. Been selling stuff on Etsy. If you want to uh, buy some stuff, go to Etsy and look up Punchy Products. And you got to look up the shop. It's kind of funky the way they have it in there. Just put it in as one word. And my most popular item I kind of stumbled on is uh, a state seal and my governor is an asshole. And it's kind of evergreen because you know that the next governor is going to be an asshole too. And I've got it for several different states. Uh, The bestseller is California. New York sells a lot. Michigan I've sold a lot of. Washington State I've sold quite a few. I just did one for Oregon. God, they have the ugliest state seal I've seen. It's kind of in 
These disgusting brown and yellow colors. It looks like the inside of a baby's diaper. But you can get that on a mug too if you want. For those of you who are kicking in a bit on Patreon, there's only a couple of you. Thank you. I do appreciate it. Anybody else wants to go there and buy me a cigar? Please, by all means, go ahead. So there's nothing more for me to say except to remind you that the Quick Hits Podcast is a journal of one man's opinion and therefore should not be taken too seriously. Seriously.